you, brother. Let's pray one more time. Holy, holy, holy are you, God Almighty. And we thank you, Father, that you have revealed your kingdom to us through Christ. Father, I pray that today through your word that the reality the peace, the richness, the power of that kingdom would be made manifest in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, and and in and through our lives as we are called into one body to glorify you, to give thanks to you through Jesus Christ to our Father and to enable us to preach this kingdom glory and power and truth to this world around us. May it be so by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We read recently... And Pastor Emilio exegeted so well 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and 3. But I want to start there today. For Paul says to the church there, telling these believers that they themselves knew full well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. And while they, they, those who are unbelievers, who are not knowing, not experiencing this kingdom reality of Christ through his salvation, that while they are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly, just like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. We don't have to look very far around us. You don't have to make many mouse clicks online to know and see that true peace Peace of the heart is a very rare rare reality and much less a commodity these days, and sadly, even so for some in the church. And here Paul is speaking, as I said, to the unconverted, the unsaved, those not yet born again into the kingdom of God. They don't know or even can experience what true peace is, is or what it's all about. In their unregenerate state, their minds are so deceived by sin and in the midst of the, the uncertainty, the turmoil, the chaos of this world, of its, its way of thinking, they foolishly declare in their unbelief, peace, safety. They don't know what it is in mind or soul, as I said, of this true peace, this, this protection that comes established in the heart of a believer because they're under the control of the prince of the power of the air and they're in bondage to sin. And also, because they are in a natural state apart from Christ, they work to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We know this from Romans 1. They don't honor, they don't heed this divinely given conscience. And we see and hear the, the ingratitude, the, the contention, the fearless blasphemies thrown up to God 
their destructive demands, their perceived entitlements hurled at, at one another and even now being enacted upon the church. A lack of, of thankfulness and, and gratitude is in essence a reflection of the heart, of a heart in turmoil, heart in frustration and in indecisiveness and sinful autonomy. And a lack of thankfulness does not foster any encouragement one with another. And, and it's even result results in a, a truly unfruitful lifestyle. Because so deeply ingrained in, in this fallen nature is that striving for this, this utopian autonomy. And we see it now expressed around us, maybe seems to be more and more each day in my life, that, that this, this outlandish self-aggrandizement, this overindulged improvement and promotion of the self-image. And that, that immoral anxiety around us today is stifling, as if, if not very dangerous. And if we, if we, even as believers, are not careful, we can be drawn into and caught up into this, this fearful tossing of the waves around us and this, this senseless attempt to find true peace in this world and with all its cares and all of its way of thinking and doing. Oh, the beauty, the resplendent beauty of the peace of Christ, of the Prince of Peace, and of His kingdom. And in these next three verses, what Brother Brian just read, this really this crescendo of this paragraph, Paul is continuing in this context here of putting on the virtues of Christ and, and fundamentally putting on Christ himself. But in, in this section of the letter, he, he also returns to a very familiar note that we see in many of his letters, this, this beautiful note, this, this theme that's, that's known, that should be known and should be sung by those in the kingdom of Christ. It's a note of thanksgiving. And, and every instance within all his letters, we find this to be, it should be a present heart reality of the believer. And one of, of, an, of an outward, attitudinal, verbal, melodious song of thanks. Right in the midst of this life. And it results from this very precious inward work of God's Word through His Spirit. As we, as Paul has reminded us, if we've gone through several times here, we who are in Christ as, as His chosen of God, as His beloved of God. And this is due directly in His abiding presence, His ruling presence. This, this is not some natural means of thanks, thankfulness, nor is it some just momentary disposition we're to have. No, we, we, we need to see clearly and take note of Paul's emphasis of, of this much-needed and to-be-heeded supply of the Lord's daily sanctifying grace and all the means that, in which he administers this grace to us. Please don't, don't gloss over this. Don't skip through it. Like just another command. This this is a command. This is a command for the believer to be thankful, to be to be singing with thankfulness, in giving of thanks, because this is one aspect of a, a great examining point of our hearts. 
What do our words and actions reflect of our own heart attitude? What's the outward expression in your life in working out your salvation with fear and with trembling? What kind of melody do those hear around you each day? Husbands, wives, children, co-workers, pastors. What's your own heart expressions to the Father in private prayer and in the midst of rush hour traffic or when you're in the middle of surgery? The, the richness or the lack thereof shown through our thankfulness of our gracious melody is so very intimately linked to both whom and what rules our hearts and where and in whom we rest and trust. Gratitude. Gratitude expressed in all of its various forms should adorn the child of God. For anything less is is an insult to God, to who he is to all that he alone has done for us through this great mystery of mercy, his kind justice to us, in setting a love so vast, so great, so deep, so powerful upon us individually, yes, in salvation, but upon us corporately as he's called us into this body. So as we're going to see, Paul is concluding, as I said, this, this crescendo, this very masterful pericope, this paragraph that we've been going through from verse 1 now to verse 17. I'm almost very sad to be leaving this paragraph. I'd love to go back through it again and again, but we're going to see here what we've seen so far is this, this practical, ongoing, deeply wrought, sanctifying means of grace for us. And both what, these are, these are foundational, what I'm calling kind of coined something here just for my mind to grasp, but these doctrinally functional truths. There are, the doctrine we know, the doctrine we study, the doctrine we believe is, is to be a living reality worked out within us. Amen? It's intended to enliven us, to enable us, to, to fuel a delighted, delightful obedience to God in all his commands from our heart. And Paul does this by closing this paragraph with what what I'm calling three governing priorities. Still things in, in what he's following that theme of putting on from verse 12. But they carry, again, this, this likeness. They, they definitely are imperatives. And they're a great priority in our both our individual communion with the Father through Christ but also, and very importantly, what he notes here, a relational communion within his body. For we must remember again what Paul said in verse 12. Let this echo in your mind and your heart as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Paul is reflectively saying here, those of you who have the kingdom of God and Christ penetrate into and permeate our hearts by the Spirit of God and the means of his gospel, those of you who were predestined and called by that triune council, that eternal decree in eternity past, those of you who have been declared just by God because of Christ's righteousness, those of you who have submitted now yourselves to the kingdom of Christ and his rule in your hearts individually through salvation, 
are to also heed these final three priorities with very keen attention. As I said, they're to be expressed and lived out corporately in one body, his church. May the Lord grant us ears to hear today. I'm going to follow again a very simple order found in the Word of God, and I have good support in this for Brother MacArthur used these same points, so prior to looking at his commentary, it was kind of an affirmation here, but we see first the peace of Christ in verse 15, second the word of Christ in verse 16, and third the name of Christ in verse 17. But before we begin this first part of verse 15, I want to first turn back. I want us to open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 26 and just read the first four verses here because I want to reemphasize all that indicative wealth that Paul has given us and to look at a, a preemptively look at this broader redemptive perspective of the kingdom perspective, of its fulfillment, both its promise and fulfillment, of what has been ushered in for us through Christ. So Isaiah 26, verses 1 to 4, we see this, this foundational kingdom prophecy of this new song of a new kingdom. It's a kingdom of peace. Isaiah says, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security, or if you see in your margin, for salvation. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful or keeps faithfulness. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. And that rock is one of refuge. We see here God has both promised and timely and fully fulfilled this covenantal prophecy for us in the person and specifically through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In him, through his death, through his burial and his resurrection, establishing and bringing his kingdom, providing this, this strong city, this impregnable city whose walls our salvation to the believer. These, these spiritual walls of deliverance and peace, both by God, and it is God through Christ who has opened the gates to those who are now righteous, the righteous man, whose life is now marked by faithfulness to those, these covenantal promises through Christ, where God's character is the passion of their lives, and for those who enter, they, who have this, this fixed disposition of trust in Yah, in God himself, who are now united in heart to fear and serve their single master, they will know this perfect peace, this ruling peace, not trusting halfway in their own ability and trusting the other half in part in God's ability. But those mind who has fully stayed upon God, we sing about that. They will know what is called this true shalom. They will rest securely upon the everlasting rock, the sure foundation of Christ. 
This, this, this is just a glimpse, but a necessary glimpse into this, both the vastness and the security, the peace that is for every true believer who trusts and looks to Christ, who have experienced and, and, and are experiencing now his kingdom rule in their hearts. For in and through this in our lives and then outwardly to those, those joint recept, recipients, those fellow members in the kingdom. This is our covenantal backdrop to keep in mind today as we, as we look at these governing priorities that are the, the living and vital aspects of Christ's kingdom rule in our hearts and in our body. So first, the peace of Christ. Paul says in the first part of verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Paul continues here with a great concern for the Colossian Brotherhood, brothers and sisters in Colossae, and, and for us as well, obviously. But however, his, his use of irene here, of, of peace, is not saying that this peace is the result of all the previous exhortations he's given us. It's not a peace of, of mutual harmony, but rather it, it's the peace that's an essential characteristic of that messianic kingdom and its rule in our lives. It's a far higher blessing than Christian union. And Paul's use of this noun is, is synonymous with a true, very true happiness, a calm of the heart and mind that is not ruffled up by adversity or overshadowed by, by even sin or even disturbed by a fear and approach of death. It is that this peace of Christ this peace brought to us by Christ himself. This is what Christ promises to us, to his own. He's, he's saying here in the very same, same sense, through his salvific work, I give you this peace. Where do we find this? This irene is also used in John fourteen twenty seven, where he says to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Or I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Don't let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. It's because of this very essential and precious characteristic of, of Christ's kingdom that is to rule in our hearts. It is why both Paul warns of these peace-destroying passions back in verses 5 to 9 that we are called to put off, but we are also to maintain its rule, to maintain its purity, to actually, and its permanence by actually cultivating these graces of Christ that we are to put on in verses 12 to 14. Paul could have expressed it in, in this way. If your life is one of putting off those vices of the old nature and preeminently these graces and virtues of Christ are being put on, then the peace of Christ will therefore reign in your hearts and through your life and into the body of Christ. You see, this, this, first, this aspect of Irene, this peace is seen in, in its objective sense. What I mean is objectively, all true believers are at peace with God through Christ at salvation. This, this is Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Where his kingdom has entered, 
in. It has defeated the dominion of sin in our lives. The warfare between the believer and God is finished. The utter completion of his intended work is finished. And this glorious propitiation and the expiation was accomplished through that crucifixion of our Savior and the shedding of his blood. And we now, as his children, and at rest, we dwell securely at peace in his kingdom. This, this is exactly what Paul told the church in Philippi, where he says in, in Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. For you, as the recipients of this messianic salvation through Christ, know what true peace is. And not just know, but this peace holds a preeminence above all our intellect and our understanding. We can't explain it, but it's there. It rules. It excels all that the mere reason of man can do. For it, 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 it is deep, it is immeasurable, it, it's an established fortress within, in our innermost being, while we are in this life and with all its surrounding turmoil and tempest. It's not a momentary lull. It's not the eye of the hurricane. It's the peace in the midst of the, what is it, the northwest corner that's the most turbulent of the storm. It's the peace in the midst of that storm. The image of Christ on the, on the waters peace be still. It's that authority in our hearts. And we are divinely guarded in our heart. We are kept by the kingdom of the Almighty in the storms of life by His kingdom peace. Do we know, do we experience this rule of His peace in our lives? And secondarily, there, there is a very real subjective aspect to this peace and it's seen in Paul's singular use here, another one of the Hapax Legomenon, his only use here of brabeo, of rule. It's to rule in your hearts. This peace of the kingdom of Christ is intended to rule in your hearts. It is What it means here is it to act as an umpire, to act as an arbiter, as we face decisions, as we face testings and trials and temptations in this world, it is to act as this arbiter for us. And it's, it's not just a mere existence of peace, as I said, nor, nor a letter of the law, but it's the peace of Christ that exercises supreme command in our heart as, as a divine umpire helping us functioning in our decisions. This, this peace given to us in the abiding rule of Christ is to possess us in an uncontested supremacy. Not just a state of mind, but within us as, as possessed by us. Not just an occasional visitor who comes by and is quickly scared away. But within our hearts is that, that central power that has full ruling administration. Practically, what does this look like practically for us, this rule of Christ's peace, acting as this arbiter, this holy umpire? Well, let me, let me look, give you a couple of real questions here to ask yourselves. 
will this decision, whatever I'm faced with, the decision I need to make, will it be consistent with the reality that Christ and I are now at peace through his atoning work? Or another way of asking this is, will my decision preserve and sustain the oneness I have with Christ and abiding in him? Will my decision usurp that? Will it begin to erode that wall of his kingdom of peace that is is treasured in my heart? This is what we see Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians in chapter 6, verses 17 and the first part of 18. But the one who joins, joins himself with the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Don't usurp that peace. Don't challenge that temptation. So it is now true of the believer because of the election and call and now union with Christ as our Lord that we are compelled to purity and fleeing immorality. And whatever situation and decision that arises for us, this peace is not hindered in any way. Secondly, another question to ask. Will my decision leave me with a deep and ongoing peace in my heart? Is there a risk that this precious peace of the messianic kingdom that's been lavished on my soul be ultimately usurped? As I said, its walls impacted, be set aside for the sake of of temporal satisfaction or self-promotion. We need to consider this because the, the Prince of Peace paid an eternal price for us. Paul continues in verse 15, he says, of this peace of Christ, to which indeed you were called in one body. And he picks again, he picks up again the same language he used in verse 12. Those who have been called and now that this peace of Christ should rule in their hearts individually because we have been called into one body. It it is this merciful and very loving summons of the Father to the peace of Christ as members of a single body both locally and universally, the body of Christ. Much like the parable we see in Matthew 22 of the marriage feast where the king gives a feast for his son and he sends out the servants to go into the highways and byways and summon those to come and be a part of his celebration, his feast, his kingdom. And accordingly, those who have now been reconciled to God, having been made peace through the blood of his cross, who now have peace with God through Christ, should now manifest this peace among one another in the local church. To live in in the unity and the harmony of the Spirit with one another as as members, as Paul says in Romans, Romans, members one of another. For we we see in this that, that the gospel is... It is necessarily individually in its focus, meaning that each of us are called by God and we respond in faith on our own individually. But at the same time, the gospel of God is is undeniably corporate in its mode of our calling. We are called along with other people, and it is with these other called ones that we make up this body to live out this peace with one another, this peace of the rule of the kingdom of Christ. One commentator says that that we as Christ's own body, which is this new self, 
we now belong inextricably to one another, meaning in a way that it's, it's impossible to separate, to dis- disentangle. And the pursuit of this peace as a reigning principle follows naturally from that corporate, and I want to emphasize this realized regeneration of who we are in Christ now. And Paul closes this first command, this first exhortation with with that theme again, and be thankful. Under the ruling peace of Christ, because of his calling and our union with one another in his body, there's not an interruption of his flow or thought or intent here, but it's that prominent theme that Paul has in in many of his letters that I began with, a heart that is truly thankful, but, but in its fullest sense, it's a heart filled with gratitude that then expresses itself and shows itself outwardly, thankfully, in thanksgiving. And we're going to look at more of that expounded in a minute. Because when we're filled with the fullness of Christ, when we meditate upon him, and all that he is, and all that he has done on our behalf, as his previous enemies, with, you could say, a right target on our back and destined for hell, vile sinners, to now call us, to rescue us from darkness, and to cleanse us of all our impurity, and then welcome us into his kingdom, and into his kingdom rule, are not our hearts filled with gratitude to him who, who, is, who is primarily, he is primarily for all of his gracious work? And is it only then that we find in our hearts both a will and the grace necessary to strive for peace with one another, to extend thanksgiving both to our Lord and to one another in the body? To show that same mercy that same love, that same forgiveness, that heartfelt ability and willingness to lay aside petty issues that would disrupt this divine peace in his church, to pursue peace with all men. We see the same theme of thanksgiving continuing on in the next two verses, in your hearts to God through Christ, to God the Father. And we can rightly both say and see that God's amazing activity, his, his work in creation is, is shown in Scripture as a basis for all mankind to express their gratitude. Thinking about Romans one twenty one, but even those thanks given over the food we receive from the providence of God are important, are worthy. But the vast majority of Paul's references and other writers of the New Testament are in the context of God's grace given to us in Christ and then expressed, as we'll see, not only in our singing of spiritual songs, but in all circumstances, every circumstance of life. And from a pastoral perspective, I I believe I can speak for both Pastor Emilio and myself. When we're faced with a decision for this body, we we are, in, in a sense, on guard. We are protecting this body and seeking out the wisdom of God so that we will strive to maintain peace within the body, to to keep it, to encourage it, to support it, whatever the decision is, whatever the challenge is, without compromising the gospel, without compromising the truth of Scripture. 
And that's how we are to approach this, this corporate, spiritual, organic life in the church to preserve the relationships within this new humanity of who we are in Christ. So Paul exhorts us, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And now, in a very parallel fashion, not interestingly, it's not linked with a conjunction or a particle as if he's adding something to this, but it, in a very parallel fashion, as the peace of Christ rules in our heart, Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you in verse 16. Our second point, the word of Christ. And Paul's use here of, of the word of Christ is very likely due to the situation with the false teachers in Colossae, specifically referring not to Christ as just the speaker, as in an, in an objective sense, I'm sorry, but in an objective sense that it is the gospel truth, it is the scriptures and the doctrine of Christ that he's talking about. This, this message that centers upon Christ, of his supremacy, of his work, of his salvation, of that word that came to them in Colossae through Epaphras. And that's the, the, the normative that's to govern their lives. In the same manner, it's to govern our lives in the word of Christ. Because for any true believer, this ongoing, indwelling truth of the gospel that both initially and continues to transform the heart, the mind, the, the, the bearing forth of that fruit of love, of joy, of peace, of kindness, all these glorious virtues of Christ, it is this rich indwelling word of his word alone that will perpetuate both our sanctifying work that he's begun and our maturing work in the body as well. This, this word of Christ, as you know, is, is not to be an occasional guest in our heart, an occasional visit on the shelf, or just a simple lesson that we learn from. It's to be within us. It, it's a source of vital and cherished life and illumination, of a revelation of Christ himself, of who he is we will never exhaust the glories of our Savior and His kingdom. And this is why Paul describes the manner of this indwelling truth as richly. Plosios, richly dwelling. And this adverb describes the manner of God's gracious bestowal of His gifts. It's, it's what Paul writes to Timothy about in 1 Timothy 6.17 where he says to instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. It's a richness of the gospel of Christ that endeavors to have its gracious and glorious way within our lives to feed us, to mature us, to equip us, to edify us. And it's, again, like, much like the kingdom parables we see in Matthew, which we studied in Matthew 13. The, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field when a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. It's where this treasure of the kingdom of heaven is so ex an extravagant richness that we're willing to part 
with all personal gain and cherish all that this gospel treasure truly offers and provides. The richness of it. There, there is no possession better. There's no beauty greater. There is no transformative truth in our lives so powerful and no means by sustaining this lasting peace of Christ's kingdom. It is, it is then this both objective special revelation that proceeds from and concerns Christ that should also richly dwell in the heart of the child of his kingdom. It's to govern our thoughts. It's to govern our words, our desires, our motivations. It's abiding in us. It's to bear much fruit. And this will happen if we, if we heed his word. Matthew thirteen nine. If we handle the word rightly. 2 Timothy 2.15, if we hide it in our hearts, not, not to secrecy, not to confinement, but as a treasure in our hearts as a rule, as that protecting garrison for us against sin, Psalm 119.11, and also to hold it forth to others as being the very word of life in Philippians 2.16, and as children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. As we continue into the rest of the the verse, there's there's some debate on the the actual punctuation and the intent of this next phrase. But if we look back at verse, verse 16 again, Paul continues and says, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing. The overwhelming understanding is shown here, and it's shown well in the NASB, tying with all wisdom to these two very important present tense, ongoing, and active participles, both teaching, dediscantes, which is positive instruction, and admonishing, nuthantantes, which is, is warnings to us. And then the verse continues, one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing. And where there also is a majority agreement here that the one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs modifies this verb here. Again, a present active verb, singing. So in essence, it's saying singing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And what Paul is, is, is saying here, what he's getting to, to the Colossians is that not only should these believers be able to instruct one another, but that this is also a, a corporate responsibility, an, an aspect of the one anothering that must be done with all wisdom in a, in a very tactful manner. Because without wisdom that comes from the richly indwelling word of Christ in a transformed heart, any, any teaching or warning, no matter how well-intentioned, could provoke or result in something opposite, something harmful, even divisive. In other words, if it's just an outward show driven solely by emotion or to impress someone and not from a heart filled with the word, it doesn't fulfill the imperatives of true teaching and admonition that will edify and mature the body of Christ. Again, there are some different views regarding the construction of the sentence as it relates to to the position of these participles and clauses, but 
teaching, admonishing, or warning, and singing, the consensus is that, that what is seen here is that the singing may have been the very means by which this mutual edification was occurring within the body. And of course, through their means, their vehicle of praise and worship to God. This is not to the exclusion of teaching and preaching directly from the scriptures, from the Old Testament text that they had, but it's another of the means of grace that was used to edify and sanctify and mature the body and to instruct them. Paul even insisted to to the Corinthian church to be prepared in heart in their gathering together to have a psalm, a spiritual song ready for the edification of the body. And for us to see this as, as an essential requirement as we gather to worship as a helpfulness to the body itself. This is why our worship is, is scripture-focused, Christ-centric, gospel-centric. So in this passage, and, and also even over in, in Ephesians 5.19, Paul says they're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your hearts to the Lord. He, he is recommending, he is exhorting this type of antiphonal praise or, or solo singing in the church gatherings. Again, in the richness of the word, unto the Lord from the heart and edifying one another in the body. And this type of worship is actually documented in many of the early church fathers from, from Pliny and Tertullian in their gatherings, they would actually recite a hymn to Christ or God or sing in the presence of others of what was known in the scriptures from their heart. It was God exalting. It was Christ exalting. It was scripture focused. Now, I, I don't believe, and no one else believes this in, in the commentators, that Paul is identifying here what they call a regulative principle or, or a specific form and, and order of worship within the church. By, by using this threefold classification that he does. But he's speaking of what was used and familiar in their times. The Psalms being of the Old Testament Psalter, which was their very predominant tool, along with the stringed instruments. The, the hymns were very likely Christian canticles from the early New Testament text and writings. And the spiritual songs might be those unpremeditated words sung in the Spirit and reflecting the truth of the Scriptures and teaching. But in all of these instances, all of these examples, what Paul is the underlying thing here, the intent, is that in our gathering, there is a heart focus that is expressed through these various means, but which all expressly acknowledge our Heavenly Father, the riches and the glory of the Gospel and of Christ, and are, are submitted to the work and the authority of the Spirit of God. These are most edifying means of grace that God has rightly intended to be exercised by his children in his body. As Paul closes this verse again, again with that wonderful heart theme of thanksgiving, with thankfulness in your hearts toward God. It is all Godward. It is all Christ-centered. For those that worship God, it says, must worship him both in spirit and in truth and in reverence and in awe with the whole heart of who he is and all that he has done for us and through Christ. And the final point of our 
text today in verse 17 and what really is a very glorious and yet a very fundamental principle for all of our life, for Christian life, is where Paul exhorts us here with really this all-encompassing crescendo of this paragraph from verses 1 to 17. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. There are very few exhortations in the New Testament that are like this one, save for 1 Corinthians 10.31, where Paul again, first warning the Christians there about idolatry, the dangers of it, he concludes again with this all-encompassing exhortation. Whether then you eat or drink, very fundamental, very mundane realities of life, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. For the true, true, true child of God, all, pantos, every comprehensive activity in our lives is to be done in obedience to the Lord and accompanied by our thanks to God through Jesus Christ. This, this is not impractical or implausible with God for us. This is not the letter of the law, but it is the outworking of God's word inscribed in our hearts and lives. But just, just consider Paul's flow here. He's saying to us that if in our lives this rich and dwelling word of Christ is, is present, it is at work within our hearts, it should effectively manifest itself in mutual teaching, mutual edification, mutual warning and admonition. And as we gratefully sing to God from our hearts in thanksgiving, then its work will show its very dynamic presence in a comprehensive way in every aspect of our lives. And Paul's point here, a very, very strong point that he's driving home to these holy and beloved, those chosen of God, is that the whole life, the entire life of the believer is to be lived in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. I know this sounds very fundamental. It sounds very simple, very basic. But Paul's use of, of pan here, all, it makes it inclusive of every aspect of our life. Not just obedience in the church setting, but when you're out mowing the grass, when you're doing dishes, when you're making that sale at work, when you're raising your children, when you're disciplining your children, when you're praying and reading God's word, when, when you're sharing the gospel, when you're paying your bills. Now, the implication here is, is that we're not to take on a, a fanatical use of Christ's name in everything we, we speak, that in Christ's name, I buy this loaf of bread. That's not what Paul's intent is here but that in every area of life, from the mundane, the very basic, to the very climatic, we're to have within our heart, within our mind, an attitude that in all we say or do, we're to have a habitual respect of Christ's authority, a conviction of his approval, such that the very constant and practice, practical influence of his word 
that richly indwells us is, is influencing our lives within us. Even when we don't have a specific reference to him or, or an expression of consulting him, that all that we say or do are done in his spirit and with the persuasion that he approves. For at the moment of salvation when we are saved, born again by the Spirit of God through faith, we call upon Jesus and Lord, and we come now under his authority and into and under this this rule and reign of his kingdom and of his peace, we now belong wholly, that's completely, to him. And everything now that we say or do, how we act, how we live, how we work, how we rest and play, how we relate to one another, all we do in word and deed ought to be done in the light of the present and eternal reality that Jesus is our Lord. And just continuing Paul's theme here of gratitude, we're to express in every deed, every word, we are to have this accompaniment of thanksgiving. Murmuring and complaining shouldn't be the melody of our song. For in this life, in this this new realized humanity in Christ, we need to have this heart attitude. Christ is our great mediator, mediator, excuse me, mediator of thanksgiving unto God for our rejoicing in God because our Lord has opened up for us. He's made the holy of holies available to us through his own blood that we may now enter into the Father's presence to live and move and have our being there. And in confidence, in prayer, in praise, in gratitude, in supplication, and to live in light of his excellent peace and presence each and every day. I pray this would be the song of our lives in in his church here and in the world around us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all praise and glory and honor are due to you. And we thank you, Father, for this kingdom of peace, of the rule of Christ, under the name of Christ, to the glory of Christ that you have called us to. Father, I pray that each new day your word would be made alive in our hearts by the working of your spirit. That all that we do and say would be done in obedience to your word with great delight, great joy, great satisfaction in you because of who you are. And Lord, in this daily reality, may we also have an eye towards eternity when all of these virtues, all of these graces, the fullness of the reality and the revelation of your kingdom, we will share in glory with Christ. Father, help us in this. Grant us your daily effective grace. And may we truly hunger and thirst for you, for your kingdom, for your righteousness.
and treasure and know this abiding peace that comes from Christ alone. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.